You can open your Bible to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews 8. And the theme of this morning's message is the New Testament is greater than the Old Testament. Let us just stop for a moment and ask the Lord's help. Eternal God, how many times have we stopped just before hearing the word and called upon you and asked for your help and asked for your grace, acknowledging that we are in need of you and in need of mercy and in need of your goodness and guidance and kindness and help. And we ask this morning that the Holy Spirit would indeed guide us, that you would open our eyes to see wondrous things out of your law. We ask these things for the sake of your beloved Son, Jesus the Messiah. Amen. Now please note, when I, when I say the theme is the Old Testament, or the New Testament is greater than the Old Testament, uh, I want you to note, if you saw the theme on the screen, that New and Old Testament, it's all in lower caps, it's not in capital letters. So I don't mean that the second part of the Bible, we call the New Testament, is greater and more important than the first part of the Bible, we call the Old Testament. Rather, I'm, I'm using the word testament as the, the author to the Hebrews uses it in chapter 9, verse 15 to 20. We'll get there in a few weeks' time. So what I'm saying, let me use an illustration perhaps, I'm using the word testament as it is used today. Uh, for instance, the last will and testament of Ivor Edward John Jeffries or whatever. So here's a man, it's his final or his last will, his last testament, and he writes in it that all my possessions must be divided between and probably or properly divided and equally divided among my three sons when I die. But now these three sons start fighting over the possessions and one says, I want the car and the other one says, I want the house and the other says, I want, I want dad's library, all his books. And because his sons are fighting about the or over the possessions, he draws up a new testament, a new final will and testament. And in it he writes that when I die, my sons should sell everything, everything should be sold and the money should be divided equally among my sons. Now that's the way I'm using the word New Testament. And when I say the New Testament, Remember, all of this and throughout the whole sermon is, sermon is, is lower caps, not capital letters. The New Testament is better than the Old. That's what I mean. That's what you should have in mind. Mind is that illustration. So, when I speak of the Old Testament, I'm really speaking of a covenant. The, the covenant that God made 
with the people of Israel through Moses in Exodus 24. And when I speak of the New Testament, I'm referring to the covenant God made with us through his son Jesus Christ. For instance, Matthew 26, 28. So undoubtedly in that sense we can say that the, that the New Testament is better than the Old Testament. And that's what Hebrews 8 means and that's what Hebrews 8 tell, tells us. And you'll see what I mean shortly. So number one, here's the first reason we, we say that the New Testament's better than the Old Testament. And that is, we have a better high priest and tabernacle. Verse 1 to 5. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it's necessary for the priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So here's a guy in a blue overall standing next to a stop-go sign somewhere on the N1 on the way to Cape Town. Well, that guy standing next to the stop-go sign is busy working. So he has to flip the sign and make sure no one crosses the line if it says stop. Or if it says go, to show the people you can go now. But Let's say there's a man with an overall sitting next to the road under a nice shady tree eating sandwiches and an apple and drinking water. Well, that guy's not working. He's resting. Now, let me use the illustration to get to our text. Under the Old Testament, remember Old Testament, small caps. Under the Old Testament, the high priest stood to do his work. But now Jesus has finished his work as a high priest, uh, at least in terms of bringing the sacrifice on earth, and because he had finished his work, he's not a high priest that stands, but he's a high priest that sits. We read in, in verse 1, it says he's seated at the right hand. The sacrifice is brought once and for all, and he never has to do that again. You see the same thing in chapter 10, verse 11 and 12, that the high priest in the Old Testament stood, and he's the high priest of the New Testament, and he sits next to his father. And that's from Psalm 110, verse 1. And the fact that he, the fact that he sits next to the majesty in heaven, he sits on a throne, it also implies that he's the king. Because the king sits on a throne. He's the king. And it also implies that he shares God's majesty. Because he went to sit at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So, for instance, we read of God in Psalm 104. 
verse 1, and it speaks of his majesty as follows. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. And then we come to the New Testament, (coughs) and then we read of Jesus in John 17, and in verse 5, Jesus prays, It says, when he had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Verse 5 says, now Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, we read the following. Uh, Peter speaks, he says, he speaks of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Verse 17, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. So there we see the majesty of the Father in verse 17 and also the son in verse 16 at the end, the majesty of Jesus Christ. He shares the majesty of his father. Uh, In Jude again we read of the majesty of God. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and so on. And then he says to the only wise God, this is Jude verse 25, our Saviour through Jesus Christ, our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time now and forever. Amen. So the point that the author or the writer is trying to make is that that Jesus himself is also God. He shares the majesty of God. He sits as co-regent, as co-rulers, as king, like his father, equal to the father. We saw that in chapter 1 already, verse 3, where it says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe, upholds the universe by the word of his power. Uh, Hebrews 1 verse 8 says, Your throne, this is the Father speaking to the Son, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. In verse 9 it says, Therefore God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So Jesus is God, that's the point, but he's also truly a man. So just like the Levitical priests in the Old Testament um, and they served in the tabernacle in this tent that God put up uh, through Moses. So they served in the tent, but now Jesus serves in the true tent. He serves in the tabernacle or in the temple of heaven. Verse 2, Hebrews 8. And he's a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Now, that does not mean that there's a literal physical or material tent in heaven or a, a temple made of stone. No, the, the point the writer is trying to make is that Jesus himself is the temple. Jesus himself is the tabernacle. A tabernacle not made by the hands of man. Uh, Jesus said that in John chapter 2. He said, break down this temple and I will set it up again. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it. And he was speaking of the temple of his body, not the temple made by the hands of of men. Uh, John 1 verse 14 says that 
the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the Greek word for dwelt there is he tabernacled among us. Jesus is the tabernacle. Uh, tabernacle is just a very fancy and great word for the tent of God in the Old Testament or under the Old Covenant. Um, Revelation chapter 7 verse 15 speaks of God in heaven and it says that he shelters us with his presence. And again in the Greek, that word shelters is he tabernacles us with his presence. Uh, in Revelation chapter 21, we read in verse 3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, they will be his people, God himself will be with them as their God. And again, the dwelling place of God is with man, the Greek there, the tabernacle of God is with man. Revelation 21 verse 22, I saw no temple in the city, this is the heavenly city, I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And then the Lamb, of course, refers to Jesus. And this is the God who came down to earth to be the new temple, to be the high priest, to be the sacrifice. That's the point of verse 1 to 3. So, he is the high priest, verse 1, he is the true tabernacle, verse 2, and he is the sacrifice, verse 3. Verse 3 reads, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it's necessary for this priest, meaning Jesus, also to have something to offer. So, he wasn't a priest like, or a priest according to the Old Testament law. <clears throat> he wasn't a priest like Levi, or from the tribe of Levi, at least, a high priest like Aaron. Verse 4, Now if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest at all. Why not? Because he's not from the lineage of Aaron he's, uh, or Levi. He's not a descendant of Levi. We saw that in chapter 7. But he's an eternal high priest. He's a high priest who doesn't bring sacrifices like goats and lambs and bulls, but he sacrifices himself. He is the offering and the high priest and the temple. And this is the high priest that now prays for us or intercedes for us. Chapter 7 and chapter 9. So, for instance, the end of chapter 4, it says, there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Uh, but then Jesus, in verse 3 at the end, he has something to offer, and that is himself. Now, the, the earthly, uh, earthly tabernacle and earthly priests, they just, they're really just a picture. They're really just a shadow. They're a copy of the true priest and the true tabernacle we have in heaven. That's what verse 5 means. They, that means the tabernacle and the priests, or the priests in the Old Testament, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. And that's why Moses, when he built the tabernacle, God said, you must do it exactly according to the plan I showed you on the mountain. Second part of verse 5. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Uh, now, everything in this tabernacle, in this, this tent, in some way or another, pointed to Jesus. For instance, there was a fence around the tent, and that showed that God is holy. You can't just stroll up and come to God. Uh, there was one way to come into this tent, one way into the tent, one way even uh, into this fence, which 
is a picture of there's one way to come to God. Jesus said that, I'm the way, the truth, the life, no one comes to the Father but through me or except through me. And then the, the first thing you would see was <coughs> an altar for burnt offerings where they, where they burnt lambs and bulls and goats and so on, pigeons. So this altar for burnt offerings and then the next thing you find is almost like a basin with water in where you wash your hands, the priest would wash their hands and feet. So the picture is, before you can come to God, before you can even go into this tent, there must be a sacrifice for your sins and you must be purified. And then you come into the tabernacle, but before you come in you see the tabernacle is, is really plain. It's uh, it's grey and brown, like the desert, like the surrounding desert, because there are animal skins that cover the tabernacle. But then if you go in into the tabernacle, you'll see gold and purple and scarlet and blue, uh, royal colours. So the picture is of Jesus to say, if you just looked at him while he was on earth, he looked like any other human being, but really inside, really inside, who is he? He is the living God, the eternal God. He's royal. He's the king. And then as you went into the tabernacle, you see a table with uh, 12 loaves of bread, probably flat cakes of bread, six on each side. And that was a picture of God providing for his people. 12 loaves of bread, 12 tribes of Israel, and then it comes to the New Testament and Jesus says in John 6, 32-35, I am that bread. I am the true bread. I am the living or the bread of life. I am the one. I am the one who provides life. I am the one who gives life to my people, who provides for my people, who feed. I am the one who feeds my people. And then you would see a candlestick called a menorah. It's got seven branches, seven lamps, and the number seven, obviously, is the number of not only completeness, but rather uh, the number of perfection. So that's a picture to say Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus says that in John 8. And then you'd see a golden altar where um, the high priest goes and he, uh, he takes a sweet-smelling incense that he burns. And that's a picture of our prayers that we offer through Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a sweet-smelling sacrifice to God. Psalm 141, verse 2, let my prayer be counted as incense. Revelation 5, verse 8 and 8, verse 3 to 5 speaks of our prayers as incense. And then you have the golden ark. If you go through the veil, there's another veil. You pass through the veil, you have this, this ark made of gold, made of wood but covered with gold and then the, the top or the lid is made of solid gold and on on top of the lid you've got two strange creatures. Their bodies look like, perhaps like lions and then they have wings and then they have wings like eagles and faces like humans and those are called cherubs or cherubim. Uh, that's a heavenly creature. And so the point is to say that's the throne of God. That Jesus is seated on the throne above the cherubim or above these heavenly creatures. Ezekiel 1 verse 26 to 28. 
And then the high priest who brings these sacrifices, that's a picture of Jesus himself, who is the high priest and who is the sacrifice. Now we can continue. I can show you all the symbolism of what the high priest's, the different parts of his, his uniform meant, his clothing meant. Uh, but I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to say that the point is that the high priest and the tabernacle of the New Testament is better than the high priest and tabernacle of the Old Testament. So let us not seek, let us not seek human mediators. The, the priests were just mediators standing between God and the people. The people couldn't come to God, so the high priest would re- represent them, and the high priest would represent God with the people. So let us not seek human mediators or an earthly sanctuary. Now, maybe you think, I don't do that. Why on earth would you give such an application? Well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever felt people shouldn't speak before the service starts, before the worship service starts? They shouldn't speak in this building. This is a holy place. Have you ever said, maybe in a prayer, Lord, thank you that we are gathered in your house today, meaning the church building. Have you ever thought that the Lord will never answer your prayer, or not never, but the Lord's not answering your prayer for this sick person, but this person will be healed if we can just get the pastor to come and pray for him. Have you ever thought that this person will be saved if we can just get the pastor to talk to him, but my own words aren't as effective? Well, without realizing it, you've just fallen into the same trap as the Hebrews, as these first readers of this letter. You, you've, you've set up an earthly sanctuary, an earthly holy place, and human mediators in the place of Jesus. Now, I'm not trying to say we should make a noise before the service starts and just ignore the people who are trying to pray. I'm not saying that spiritual leaders shouldn't pray for the sick. I'm not saying that, oh, you know, very often the pastor does know more of the Bible than the average church member. But what I am trying to say is that we shouldn't set up, again, we shouldn't set up an earthly sanctuary, an earthly holy place, an earthly tabernacle and human mediators. These things are just shadows. They're shadows of the final and the greater and the greatest high priest, the greatest mediator, the greatest and final tabernacle. That's the point of verse 1 to 5. So, so yes, we shouldn't ignore our spiritual leaders. We shouldn't ignore, oh, we come together in this building to worship the Lord. But when we do so, uh, thinking of these things, spiritual leaders and earthly places of worship, don't set them up in the place of Jesus. Because if you do that, you are returning to the Old Testament. And you're forgetting that the New Testament is better than the Old Testament. Number two, secondly, here's the second reason why I made that statement. That the New Testament is better than the Old. And that is because we have better promises. And that's in verse 60-30. It says... But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. 
For God finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, as with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. <coughs> and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, God makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So here's the author, this writer to the Hebrews, and he calls Jesus a mediator of a better covenant in verse 6. What is a covenant? Well, in, in biblical language, it's really just the same thing as a testament or a will. So it's a, it's a, a promise that is made with an oath. It's a pledge, like for instance, a marriage. That's a covenant. So God makes a promise, but he swears this promise with an oath, as we saw at the end of chapter 6 a few weeks ago. And he gives an external sign, some, some symbol, some sign to remind us of the covenant. For instance, he made a covenant. He will never again destroy the whole earth with a flood. What was the sign? Well, he hung up his bow meaning his bow and arrow, a rainbow he put in the sky. Or he made a covenant with Abraham that I will give this land to your descendants and what was the sign that your descendants are my people? Uh, circumcision, that was the external sign. And then God provided a sacrifice to show that whoever breaks this covenant, whichever one of the parties breaks the covenant deserves death. And like today, people... Uh, people seal a covenant with ink to make it, uh, to say this is, this is real, this is genuine, this is permanent. They sign it with pen and paper, with ink. And so in the covenants in the Bible, it's sealed with blood. Now what makes the old covenant or testament, or the new covenant or testament, better than the old one? Well, verse 6 tells us, at the end it says, that the covenant that Jesus mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Does that mean, oh, wait a minute, so in the old covenant God lied. So now the new covenant is better, he will never break his promise again, like he lied in the old covenant, or under the old covenant. No, not at all. God doesn't lie. Uh, we read that in... Hebrews 6 verse 18, uh, what the author is rather, what he's trying to tell us here is that Israel, they didn't keep their part of the covenant. And the covenant was written on in ten sentences, 
in the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy 4 verse 13 calls the Ten Commandments the covenant. So they broke that covenant and that's why God showed no concern for them. The end of verse 9. He says it. He says they did not continue in my covenant. Second part of verse 9. So I showed no concern for them. Declares the Lord. And so because they broke this covenant or because they broke God's law, but most of them couldn't enter the promised land and even those who did enter the land didn't stay there for long because they broke God's covenant. So the point he's trying to make here is to say that the law couldn't change their hearts. The law told them what to do but it couldn't make them do it. That's what we saw in chapter 7 verse 11. If perfection had been attainable through Levitical priesthood, or in verse 7, 7 verse 19, the law made nothing perfect. But with the new covenant it's different. The Holy Spirit changes our hearts and he enables us to do what God demands and what God commands. Uh, chapter 13 verse 21 says, God promises to equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. Philippians 2 also, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. And we can summarize it in the form of this little poem. This is a, quite a famous poem. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives him neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly, and gives us wings. And that's the point the author to the Hebrews is trying to make in this chapter. That's what he said in verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. And that's the whole point. So under the Old Testament or the law, our hearts couldn't change, or, or at least let's say the law couldn't change our hearts. The Old Testament couldn't change our hearts. And that's why God promised a new testament. Verse 7. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them. They broke that law. When he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant. And that comes, this quote comes from Jeremiah 31, verse 31 to 34. Now, to who did God make the promise? Verse 8. Second part, with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. But if we trust in Jesus Christ as our Saviour, as our Lord, if we repent of our sins and come to him for salvation, then we are included in this new covenant. We are the true Israel of God. We are children of Abraham. Read Galatians 3 and Galatians 6 verse 16 also. And so then God makes the following promises to us, four of them in this passage. The first promise is in verse 10. I will write my law upon your hearts and I will give my spirit. I will give my spirit within you so that you can obey me and so that you desire to obey me. That's what we find in Ezekiel 36 verse 26 and 27. Romans 8 verse 4. It says that the spirit helps us now. The demands of the law are fulfilled in us because the spirit dwells or lives in us. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 3 speaks of the law written on our hearts. So it's no longer an external law written on stone, written on tables of stone, uh, 
and it's, it's so difficult to obey. No, no. 1 John 5 verse 3, the second part tells us that his laws are not difficult to obey. Now, why not? Because the Lord himself works within us. The Lord himself changes us. It's he who changes us to, to obey and to have the power to obey and the desire to obey. Uh, verse 8 to 12, again and again, we see these words where it says, I will. For instance, verse 10, I will make this covenant. Verse 10, I will put my laws in their hearts. I will be their God. Verse 12, I will be merciful. Verse 12, I will remember their sins no more. Verse 8, I will establish the new covenant. God is the one doing these things. And he will, he will keep his promise when he says, I will do this, I will do this. Verse 8 to 10 again. We see at the end, uh, or no, verse 8 in the beginning, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Verse 9, second part, I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Verse 10, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Meaning, I have said this, I will do this. And that's the difference between the false religion of many Afrikaans speaking people in this land and Zulus and Khorsas and Vendors and English people speaking and Indians and Coloreds. That's the false religion of many people. Uh, the difference between that and the the true religion of the New Testament. So under the false religion, people just, they see this burden that they have to bear. They've got this external law they need to live according to this law and, and religion is this thing added to their lives. But if the Holy Spirit dwells in you, He lives in you, and you live under the new covenant, the new testament, then you Love obeying God. You enjoy obeying God. Verse 10, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. So your religion then, it's not a part of your life, it is your life. Christ is your life. Is that true of you? Or do you have a false religion that's just added to your life? The second promise is in verse 10. And it says at the end of verse 10, I will be their God, they shall be my people. So God, God will not push us away as he did with Israel when they rebelled against him under the Old Testament. End of verse 9, I showed no concern for them. God will not say, you are not my people and I am not your God. God will say, you are my people and I am, I am your God. I am your Father. You are my children. <coughs> and because he's our Father, it means he understands all our problems. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. It means that he, he answers all our prayers. Mostly yes, sometimes no, and sometimes wait. He answers our prayers. If we are evil, know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will our Father who is in heaven give, give good things to those who ask him? 
He's our Father in heaven. He cares for the birds and how much more for his own children. Because he's our Father, he will discipline us. Always driven by love, but he will discipline us if we stray, if we turn away from him, if we, we're in danger. Uh, Hebrews 12, verse 5 to 11. Because he's our Father, we're part of his family. And all the treasures of heaven, is, it's ours. The treasures are ours in Christ. Romans 8, verse 14 to 17. And because we are his children, we are even closer to him than the angels are. The angels are just his servants. We, we're the bride. We're the bride. Third promise, you will know me personally and you can know me personally. That's in verse 11. And that is what it means to have eternal life, to know God personally. Uh, John 17, verse 3. So it's not like under the old covenant where people became part of the covenant by being born. You're just born and you're part of God's people. And so now you're a baby and you grow up and your parents need to teach you to know the Lord and the prophets need to teach you to know the Lord. Verse 11 gives us the opposite now. Now we're under the new covenant and you don't become part of God's people by being born. You become part of God's people by being born again, by a spiritual birth. Which means that everyone in this covenant knows the Lord. Verse 11, they shall not teach each one his neighbour and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. So we, we won't have to teach one another to know the Lord because we know him from the moment of our spiritual birth. And this knowledge is not just for important people like priests. It's for everyone who believes in Jesus. End of verse 11. They shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Now, what, is the, what are the positive and the negative implications of this? Well, under the New Covenant, God's people are made up, God's people is made up of believers. That means only believers may be part of the church. I'm not saying only believers can visit a Sunday service or attend a Sunday service. Only believers are allowed to be members of the Church of Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes you have uh, Simon the Sorcerer who comes in and we don't know that he's a false man. Or sometimes you have Demas who was a false believer and we think he's a Christian and he, he tricks all of us. But as far as we can help it, we shouldn't baptize unbelievers and we shouldn't allow unbelievers to become members of the Church. And that has further implications. And these implications are that we shouldn't have cheap conversions. And just say to someone, pray this prayer after me. Uh, are you sorry for your sin? Do you believe that Jesus died for your sin? Wonderful, now you're a Christian. And it also means that we shouldn't baptize babies and say, oh, now you're part of the church, you're part of God's covenant people. Now most people think, most people think that, uh, oh, God's covenant people, it includes babies, it includes children. But that's how it was under the Old Covenant, under the Old Testament. Under the New Testament, verse 11 says, we do not need to teach one another to know the Lord, because everyone will know him. That can mean one of two things. First, your, your children are part of the covenant, so you don't need to teach them about the Lord. Or second, it can mean, well, you must teach your children about the Lord, which means they're not part of the covenant. And according to Hebrews 8, the second option is the right one. 
And it's, it's tragic really that most, or not most, but many churches, they choose the first option and they don't see any need of sharing the gospel with so-called covenant children. But let me ask you a question. What if these covenant children are never saved? Must we then say, oh goodness, oh my, um, you know, the new covenant failed just like the old covenant. And then churches who preach a cheap gospel saying, just say this little prayer, do you believe Jesus died for you now you're a Christian? People who do that, or if there are other churches who think that children are part of the covenant, well those churches, they are packed with unbelieving church members. Unsaved church members. And it's their wrong theology that causes that. And if you, did, if you don't believe me, just ask yourself this question. How many church members do these churches have? And how many of those members are in church on a given Sunday? A lady once phoned me. She's from a church like that. And she said, oh, we were just chatting. Her mother was in our church. How are you doing? And so on. And she said, oh, so tell me, do you still have evening services? And I said, yes. And she said, how many people come? And I said, not many. We're between 30 and 40 people at that stage. It's grown now. I'm, I'm glad for that. But uh, I said, yeah, about so much. And she said, oh, that's a lot. She's from a church with a thousand members. They have a hundred people in the morning service, twelve people in an evening service. How many of the people who've responded to an altar call come to the front? Come, say a prayer. Do you believe Jesus died for you? Now you're a Christian. How many of those people that you've seen do that really want to serve the Lord with their whole heart? They really live for Jesus Christ. How many of the people who have been accepted into church members, membership in churches where they say, oh, these babies, they're part of the covenant, and now you're 17, now you stand in front of the congregation and we receive you as members of the church. First you were like, not truly members, uh, members who were baptized and you, you've got kind of members and now you're full members. How many of those people still serve the Lord? <coughs> they leave the church as soon as they're 19 years old. So obviously it doesn't help to confuse the old and the new covenant. Third promise, I will forgive their sins. I will no longer think of their sins, or I'll remember their sins no more. That's in verse 12. And that happened because Jesus died on the cross. And on the cross Jesus took the punishment for our sins and now we, we receive all the benefits of that by faith, by trusting in Jesus Christ. So then if that is true of you and you trust in Christ, then these words of Stuart Olliot you can make it your own. We now, he says, quote, we now enjoy pardon for our sins, the sins of our nature, open sins, secret sins, repeated sins, yesterday's sins, today's sins, tomorrow's sins, whether these be actual transgressions or sins of neglect, sins of omission, every sin. Now immediately the question comes, well, does that mean now I can live the way, the way I want to? I can just live as I please, I can sin, that doesn't matter, my sins are forgiven. God will never think of my sins. Well, no, that's not what it means. If you, if you reason like that, anyone who thinks like that is not saved. Romans 6 verse 1 and 2. No, the lesson here is rather that under the new covenant there is hope for the greatest sinner to be forgiven. So why? Why did these Hebrews, these first readers, 
Why did they so desperately want to return to the temple and to the Old Testament temple and priests and sacrifices? Why did they want to cling to that and hold on to that if the Lord has made a new covenant? And it wasn't long, it wasn't many years from after writing this letter that the temple was destroyed in AD 70 by the Romans. That's the point of verse 13. He's speaking of a new covenant. He makes the first one obsolete. What's becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And that happened. The temple was destroyed. Now perhaps you wonder, but wait a minute, are you saying that we must throw away the law of Moses? Well, if that's what you think, then you've misunderstood me. What I'm rather trying to say is, We must see the law as Moses saw it, as types, as shadows of the Messiah who was to come. John 5 verse 46, Moses wrote of Jesus. And so it's unnecessary for us to follow a Jewish diet, kosher food, like some people do nowadays. Or to say we must return to the Old Testament feasts and have these feasts again. Don't hold on to the Old Testament shadow if you have the fullness of Christ in the New Testament. Verse 5 said, these things were a copy. Chapter 10, verse 1, the law is a shadow. Colossians 2, 16 and 17, same thing. So I hope you haven't misunderstood me like some pastor did a few years ago. (coughs) My friend and him and another guy, they went for coffee and they were sitting at the table and uh, in this restaurant or the coffee shop and they were discussing something and the two other pastors said oh so we're having this camp for the children who are now going to be accepted as church members uh, the catechism camp and what should we preach and my friend suggested why don't you preach the gospel and challenge them to be to repent and believe in Jesus Christ and they both were shocked Like, how can you suggest that? These are covenant children. (laughs) Don't be like that pastor who wrote a book called The Baptist Movement in which he falsely accused Baptists saying, oh, Baptists only believe the New Testament. That's not true. I hope that you can see what I was trying to say this morning. Really, I can just say it in this sentence. Jesus is greater than Moses. Let us pray.